this has been a weekend of remembrance. Uh, probably nobody missed the significance of yesterday. Uh, 20 years ago, yesterday radically changed in our life as a nation. Uh, if you watch a movie or TV show from the 1990s and they have an airport scene, you're like, well, that's, it's never going to be like that in the airport ever again. Uh, the lack of security and, and the way that life used to be. I, d- I never flew in the 90s, so I, don't, I, I wasn't old enough or just never did. I don't know what it was like before the, the TC, TSA and the checkpoints and all that stuff, but uh, we're never going back, right? Um, James Clement, who's preached here before, you probably remember some of his story. Uh, a huge reason, probably the motivating reason he became a Marine was because of 9-11. And his entire life changed because of what happened on that day. Uh, and it's still affected by the things that he uh, experienced when he was in Afghanistan for a season. Uh, I was an eighth grade science teacher in Lafayette. I was in between first and second period. The bell had rung. Kids were changing classes. All of my second hour classes, had gone. Uh, students had gone in. I see our assistant principal walking down the hall, and he walks up to me, and he says, uh, the World Trade Center and the Pentagon have been bombed. We're at war. And he walks off. And as I'm trying to absorb that and process that and walk in to teach a class, uh, a few minutes later, our principal came on the intercom. This is in Lafayette. And uh, she announced kind of the same thing in tears. And then we had a moment of silence. And uh, that, that just happened to be a day that I had kids in computer lab all day. And so I got to, they got to sit and do computer program type stuff. And I got to turn on the radio and just listen to the events unfold. Uh, and then go down the street when school was out and pick up my wife, who was a second grade teacher. Um, we went home. It was just the two of us. Abigail, our oldest, was four months away uh, from being born. And she, she deals with that kind of stuff by uh, withdrawing. She goes, goes to bed early. I, I deal with it by just watching and reading everything I can, absorbing. And I stayed up late and, and continue to do so, as a lot of you probably did 20 years ago. Um, there are the, the, the two words that we hear every year when 9-11 rolls around. Never forget, right? That's become something that means a lot to us as Americans, those words. Uh, yesterday I saw posted all over the place, uh, maybe you did too, if you didn't, I, I would look it up, the transcript of the call between Todd Beamer and uh, someone named Lisa on the ground, Flight 93, and then later an FBI agent was in on the call uh, before they sacrificed their life to foil that part of the hijackers' plot uh, to fly a plane into the White House or the Capitol. And you can't read that transcript without tears if you haven't read it or heard it. Now, these actions are all very dear to us as, as Americans, and you don't even have to be a Christian to be impacted by the, the events of that day or the significance of the sacrifice of somebody like Todd Beamer and other people who did similar things, the flight attendants and other people on that flight. And, and you, you're like, why? Why, is, why? why does that resonate with us so much? Well, we, we love our country. We're passionate about our nation. We're passionate about the life that we've been given by God's grace and seeing that maintained. And we may bicker and fight within, but like all families, if you attack from the outside, well, we come together and we fight back, right? Uh, and, and, and so we, we understand the significance, even a non-Christian, of someone sacrificing their life for someone else to live. And, and the reason for that is God has imprinted in our DNA as image bearers the significance of loving sacrifice. Every human being understands this because God has woven it into who we are as human beings so that when we see the greater sacrifice, 
In fact, the greatest sacrifice, our hearts would be drawn to that. And we would be like, oh, Jesus, the Son of God who was sinless and perfect, He gave His life for us who are incredibly unworthy. That's, there's nothing greater than that. For the kingdom of Jesus, the only kingdom that will last forever, long after the United States of America is gone and all the other nations of the world are gone, there's no greater kingdom to be a part of or live for than that kingdom. And so the, the events of this weekend just give us a, a, a taste of this much greater reality, reality that we celebrate as Christians through what Jesus has done for us and for the kingdom of Christ. In fact, it's so important. We also have a never forget slogan. It might be on your table down there. Do this in remembrance of me. Never forget what I've done for you. We see all of this in this passage in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and he will rise after three days. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want, to do whatever we, uh, we want you to do whatever we ask you. Well, what do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, Allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left, it's not mine to give. Instead, it is for those to whom it has been prepared. When the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them over and said to them, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. As we spend time in this passage today, seeing who you are and what you've done for us, may the Spirit of God, the Word of God, do work inside the people of God to challenge us, to convict us, to encourage us. If there's anyone here who doesn't know Jesus yet and this incredible sacrifice that you've provided for our salvation, then we pray that today would be the day of their salvation, that today their eyes would open and they would see how precious Jesus is and all that Jesus has done for them to live and be one of your kids. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We talk a lot in our church about how identity leads to mission and lifestyle. Who you are precedes what you do. And with some of the obvious teaching about humility and greatness in this passage, we might be tempted to just run quickly to that and say, well, this is what you don't do, like the disciples, and here is what you do and how we want to do it, like Jesus. And, and that would work. 
But it's such a high and lofty image of Jesus in this passage and His purpose for coming that I want to begin there and spend most of our time there because what I hope and pray is that if this reality of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us that's found in verse 45 settles even more deeply into our minds and hearts, then the Spirit will motivate humility and service in all of us. And the high point, one of the mountaintop theological truths, is found in verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. A verse uh, Pastor John Piper, author of John Piper says, it's what turns Christianity into the gospel. A verse that shows the purpose of His coming, the purpose of His coming as a baby that would one day die and give His life as a ransom for many. Now when we think of ransom, we mostly think of bad people kidnapping someone we love, and then we have to get them free by paying an amount of money to the kidnappers so that they will be freed. Well, in the first century, it's a little bit different. The idea of ransom in the first century had to do with uh, paying a price to someone who was a slave or someone who was in prison to set them free. Usually, they would be enslaved or in prison because of a debt they couldn't pay. Then they would have to work off their debt. So you come along and say, I've done work to earn this money to set you free. I'll pay your debt for you. And that was the idea behind ransom. Kind of the same idea, but without the kidnapping aspect. Jesus came to die to purchase the freedom of slaves and those in bondage. You see this in Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Redeeming us as sinful people under the law, under the bondage of the law, so that we could be adopted and become sons. No longer slaves, but sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. 1 Peter 1, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. We who are slaves and prisoners to sin by nature, we who are slaves and prisoners to sin by choice, we're in total bondage and unable to free ourselves. And here comes Jesus to pay the price necessary to set us free. And the price he had to pay was the price of his life, his death. And some wonder, why? Why was that the price? Why did Jesus have to pay this ransom with his life? Why couldn't there have been another way? And there's a lot of ways to answer this question. But this morning, think about it like this. Jesus dying to pay our ransom and set us free was the only way God could be both just and God could also be loving. Go back to the garden. God told our parents, Adam and Eve, if you eat of this tree, you will die. He gave one negative command. He told them to be fruitful, multiply, rule over creation with me, enjoy all of creation. Don't do this one thing. If you do it, eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do that, you will die. That's called sin. Death, understood, is more than just when our physical bodies quit working. Death, the essence of death, is separation. So when they rebelled and sinned, there was separation. Separation between man and woman. Now their relationship will be marked by difficulty and division. All the married people say, Amen. Between man and creation. Now work would be hard. Everybody's got a job says, 
Amen. Work is hard. Between man and God, we were kicked out of the garden, no longer to return to walk with the Lord in the cool of the day, cut off, separated from Him. Why? Because of sin. We who were sinful could not remain in the same place as a holy God. We had to be cut off. We could no longer walk with Him in the cool of the day. Sin had cut us off from Him. And because God is just and upholds His commands... He could have treated us like He treated the angels who rebelled against Him and not have come after us in redemption, but condemned us and allowed us to remain in a state of separation and death. But God had a different plan for His image bearers than He had for the angels who rebelled against Him. God also wanted to demonstrate His love, His grace, and His mercy. And so because He is loving and gracious and merciful, He could have just looked at us and said, well you're off the hook. Yeah, you sinned, but I'm feeling generous today. Just, just let it go. We'll pretend like it didn't happen. I'll just forgive you. No harm, no foul. No, that wouldn't work because harm had been done. Uh, God is just. He, so therefore, he can't change the rules of the game. A crime had been committed. A penalty had to be paid. A, a, a price had to be paid. Someone had to pay that price. A judge is not a just judge if criminals show up in their courtroom and the judge says, you know what, don't worry about it. Y'all just go home, go scot-free. Like we would want that judge removed from the bench immediately. And when those kinds of things do happen, because a judge has been paid off or there's a, a criminal underbelly in our justice system, we're like, that's not right, that's unjust. Let's fix that system. It's very broken. That's not a just judge. So then the, the, the dilemma is, how could God who is just let the guilty experience his love? Well, what if he paid the price for our sins? What if he took our guilt and punishment on himself? What if the judge took off the robe, came down from behind the bench, became our lawyer advocating for us the guilty, and also became the criminal, the guilty one, to take on the punishment that we deserve. Romans 5 speaks clearly to this, verse 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us. And that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Christ dying for us, saved by Him from the wrath of God because He took on the wrath of God Himself. This is the cup in the baptism Jesus is referring to in verses 38 and 39. Cup in this context and throughout the Old Testament refers to drinking down the wrath of God. The cup of God's wrath being poured out. Baptism in that verse carries the idea of being immersed in this wrath. And Jesus asked these disciples, can you drink this cup? And be baptized with this baptism? And the rhetorical question is, no, they can't. No one can pay the price Jesus is about to pay. 
And even though the disciples would go on to suffer, as he signifies in verse 39, when he says they would drink the cup and be baptized, you will suffer for my sake. It's not the same cup and baptism that Jesus endured. And guys, we can't even begin to imagine what drinking that cup was like for Jesus. We know when he was in the garden, he prayed, if there's any other way, Father, if there's any other way, which signifies to us there was no other way. Not, but, but then he says, not my will, your will be done. We know the stress from what he's about to face was enough to cause him to drop sweat, uh, uh, sweat drops of blood, a medical condition that only comes through shock and extreme stress when capillaries will burst and blood will come out through our pores. Everybody in this room has been stressed. Has anybody been stressed enough to sweat drops of blood? I don't think so. As one author put it, God the Father set the cup down in front of the Son in the garden, and the Son knew He had to drink down the wrath of God. He's the only one who could. And for us, because God is just, sin had to be punished. But because God is love, He took it on Himself. And this is why He came. This is why He came to pay this price to set us, the guilty ones, free. The condemned ones free. The sinful ones free. The rebels who made all of this necessary. Like, think about how sinful we are. We're the only part of creation that shakes our fists in the face of God and says, no, 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 I know better than you. I don't want to do it your way. I want to do it my way. We're the only part of creation who believes we are the captain of our ships and we should be the captain of our ships. We want what we want, when we want it, how we want it. We make plans. We expect them to work out. And when they don't work out, what do we do? We get mad. Or we get anxious. Or we get afraid. We live trying to protect ourselves from being hurt. We constantly compare ourselves to others. And when we find others who are better at whatever, we go into despair. And we find others who are worse at whatever, we boast. Look at us. At least we're not like that. We love people enough to get them to think we're a good person, to think that we love them, but we don't really love them enough to dig deep and deal with the junk of their life. We keep them at arm's length. We find far greater joy and we get much more excited about the newest Marvel movie trailer or the new series that drop on Netflix or a new show to come on TV than we do about God's Word and spending time with the God who created us and spend time with Him in prayer and communion just to enjoy Him. We are great at loving people who love us back, but we struggle with loving those who are hard to love, and we struggle to love especially our enemies. We have genuine fears about how we're doing in life, fears of failure, fears of the future, fears of people's opinions of us, fears of being known, and we mask and we hide those fears with anger, insecurities, and coping mechanisms. We are truly happy, made happy by anything and anyone more than Jesus, and frankly, if we could live a life where the bills would always be paid in full, my family would be safe, healthy, and happy. We could have a little extra cash for fun times of vacation. Many of us could do with or without Jesus. We live our lives as though Jesus could, in fact, be optional. He's not central to our joy and happiness and well-being. Our jobs, our money, our family, our pursuit of pleasure, our spouses, our girlfriends, our boyfriends, all of that matters more than having Jesus as the source of our happiness and joy. Church, we are, we 
are incredibly sinful. We tend to think that that's a problem out there. We're the ones Jesus died for. And the problem is in here. Jesus left the worship and glories of heaven and came here as a baby, wrapped His glory in flesh, and grew up without committing a single sin. Began His ministry through through which He would be overwhelmingly demonstrating that He was fully human while also being fully God. He would love, He would serve, He would teach, He would heal. He would blow our minds continually, and at the end of His perfect life of love, truth, grace, mercy, compassion, joy, and power, He would willingly, lovingly give His life so that we amazingly sinful people could be set free. We, the enemies of God, could be made into sons and daughters. We, the rebels, could be made into worshipers. He died for us. There's not one single thing in us that makes us worthy or deserving of this gift. The only thing that makes us worthy or deserving of this gift is because He created us in His image. Something He gave us. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. As sinners, all we have earned in God's eyes is death. And He has given us life. Church, never, ever, ever let this become trite, old, or boring. Never, ever, ever allow your heart to not be warmed by this simple reality. It's an old hymn I had never heard until I began pastoring uh, in Spearsville 18 years ago. Lead me to Calvary. Some of you may know it, and the course goes like this: Lest I forget Gethsemane, lest if uh, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me. Lead me to Calvary. Never forget. Never forget Calvary. The reason in the crossing we do communion every single week is so that every single week we are punched in the gut with the reality that we are amazingly sinful that necessitated the death and sacrifice of Jesus. But we are also amazingly loved because He willingly paid that price. Lovingly paid that price. This is the Gospel. Some people struggle with the why of Jesus' death. Because the idea of the cross is so offensive, they think it's foolish or ridiculous to believe in that. So bloody and old-fashioned. We're much more sophisticated nowadays. Why is the cross essential? That's one danger, and I hope and pray you've seen the necessity of the cross. But the second danger, and probably more prone for us here, is that we have an intellectual knowledge of the cross without it affecting our everyday life. We can pass the, the theological test on penal substitutionary atonement. We know why Jesus had to die but our life is still mostly marked by captivity to sin. We are free in Jesus, but we live as though we are enslaved. We sometimes think the freedom Jesus has purchased for us is the freedom for us to just do whatever we want. We think that's real freedom, but that's, in fact, bondage because you're in serving masters out there who are bending you to their will. The freedom Jesus has come to provide for us is the freedom to do God's will. Titus 2.14 Jesus gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. We've been set free for good works that God has predestined beforehand for us to do so that we would walk in them 
as Ephesians 2.10 says. So because of Jesus giving His life as a ransom for us, we are free to be zealous in good works. What do those good works look like? Well, we could go throughout the New Testament looking at those, but let's focus on the ones in this passage. And there's three that we'll look at uh, quickly. They are the good works demonstrated by Jesus. Number one, we have been set free by Jesus dying for us. We have been set free to be submissive to our Father's will. Verse 32, if you go back to the beginning of the passage, has Jesus leading His disciples to Jerusalem. They're heading up from the surrounding area of Judea. It's not a long trip. We are just days from His triumphal entry, days away from this week of His passion. And Jesus is headed to Jerusalem to face His death. And He's leading His followers there. No one's dragging Him. He's not acting like a prisoner headed to His execution. In fact, it's the disciples who are uncertain... They are the ones who are shook up and in fear. And Jesus is headed there knowing what is coming. Look at verse 33. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn Him to death. Then they will hand Him over to the Gentiles. They will mock Him, spit on Him, flog Him, kill Him, and He will rise after three days. This is the third of these passion predictions, one in chapter 8, one in chapter 9, one in chapter 10, this last one. This one has the most detail of them all, just incredible detail. Who, who looks forward to that? Like if you knew when you went to work tomorrow or when you ran into a certain person this week, they were going to spit in your face, you'd be like, I'm out. I'm just not going to go. I'm not going to run into that person. No, and he, all of this is waiting for him. And he's going willingly. This is submission to the Father's will. As we learn in Acts 4, verse 27 and 28, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Everything that is going to happen is according to the plan and purpose and will of God. And here is Jesus leading His disciples to His bloody cross, totally submissive to the will of His Father. In fact, you see one more picture of this in verse 40. It's more subtle, but it's very real. Verse 40, where He says, But to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Talking about who will sit on His right and left, Jesus says, That's not my decision, but it's for those for whom it's been prepared. In that comment, you see submission within the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. And Jesus makes several comments like this throughout the Gospels. He's only doing what His Father is doing. God is Father, Son, and Spirit. But the Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is not the Father or the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father or the Son. And they are, they are one, yet they are distinct. And here is one small way we see this distinction. The Son submitting to the will of the Father about whom it has been prepared to sit on His right or left. Father, let this cup pass. Not my will be done, but Thy will be done. Because Jesus died for us and set us free, we are free to submit to the gracious will of our Father in every area of our life and follow Him wherever He takes us. We don't know what's coming like Jesus knew, but we know Him. And He does just like Jesus did, and, 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 and He knows what's coming for us, and we can trust Him. This is the posture of humility, the posture of a child, the posture of a disciple of Jesus. Wherever you lead, I will go. 
We were uh, down south this weekend uh, playing volleyball for the team I coach, my daughter plays on, having supper last night after a good win. One of the moms in our group has a son who's uh, just joined the Marines this summer. And he just graduated. Now he's at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, beginning the process of becoming a Marine. He's 18, 17, 18 years old, young, 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 young. She's, it's messed her up. She is shook to the core of her being that she now has to entrust her son to be a U.S. Marine. And she was talking about this with some of the parents. Just, he, he called. He, so she, she gets one call a week. She'll know when it's going to come. She's got her phone on all the time. So we're sitting there waiting to get our seat in the restaurant. He called. So she's outside for like 30 minutes. Like, she didn't care if she even ate. Talking to her son, loving it, and then she'll just wait to hear from him at some other time. And she's sharing how hard this has been just to, she knows she can trust the Lord. Now she's having to know that she can trust the Lord, right? Feel in the deepest part of her being peace that her Father in Heaven loves her son has her son, cares about her son even more than she does. And wherever he takes her son on this journey through a U.S. military career, he's in charge. He's in control. He's got this. It's, it's, it's true for all of us in all of life with every single relationship, every single day, every single need, every single want, everything. You have a Father in Heaven who says that He provides everything for the birds. Are you not more valuable than them? He clothes the grass of the field. Won't He clothe you? He knows every single sparrow that falls to the ground. How much more does He know you? He knows every single hair on your head. He has a number of your days written in a book. He calls every star by name. Do you know how many stars there are? And they're continually discovering more and more galaxies. If He knows the name of every star, how much more does He know the ones He created in His image and that He died to redeem and adopt into His family? And so you, brother and sister, are set free to trust Him, follow Him, and know that He has your future in His hand. His loving, gracious hand. He's not a tyrant. He's your Father. Your life, your college, your career, your jobs, where you will live, who you will marry, or if you will be married, every child born to you, your spouse, their futures, your health, your house, your cars, your relationship, what city you live in, what church you'll be part of, the day that you die, who you'll be surrounded with, when you will die, what it will be like when He calls you into His presence. Every single aspect of your life He has got. Everything you need to accomplish His will, He will provide. He tells us in Romans 8, 30, 32, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? And we can submit and follow Him who will lead and provide all that we need. Secondly, we are set free to be gracious and humble with each other. We are set free to submit to our Father's will just like Jesus. Secondly, we are set free to be gracious and humble with each other. See this in the way Jesus treats His disciples. He's leading to Jerusalem and the text says they are following Him in amazement and in fear in verse 32. They're just kind of unsure about what's going on and who they have with him. Who is this guy? Where are we going? What is all this talk about? Mocking and spitting and blood and everything and dying. Now at least they are still following him. And so even though they didn't know where they were going, uh, he does. And they're kind of trailing along like kids, kind of dumbfounded. And then in that context, Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He tells them what is coming. And then you have this amazing exchange between Jesus <coughs> and two of his closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. Jesus' closest followers, they saw 
things that, with Jesus that other disciples did not see. And two of them, these brothers, came and made this request in verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want, to do whatever you, we want you to do whatever we ask you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They said, Allow us to sit at your right and your left in your glory. And Jesus says, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus says, You will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Now, this question of James and John smacks of immaturity. Whatever we ask you to do, Jesus, just say yes. Exactly what our kids do when they're little, right? Daddy, just say yes. Just say yes. To what? I don't know. Just, just what I'm, I'm going to ask you. Make sure you say yes. And when they're young, you can go along with it like, okay. When they get much older, you're like, I need some details before I say yes, before I hand over the car keys or give you the, the cash. They ask to sit in, by him in his glory. Now, there's one aspect of that that's good. They know he will be is headed for glory. They get that. He is the Messiah, and at some point, he will reign in glory. In fact, Jesus told them uh, in Matthew 19, Matthew 19, verse 28, he says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit in his glorious thrones, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, chronologically, Matthew 19 comes right before this request. But for James and John, that's not enough. So in a very arrogant and sick way, we want you to have glory, Jesus. We know it's coming, but we want to have some of it too by sitting closest to you. Like, we really want you to succeed so that we can sit by you and we can look great just like you. We can be the best. Incredibly audacious and naked in its lack of shame. Now, ironically, Jesus would soon be in his glory, but not how they were expecting. And on the cross, he would have one on his right and one on his left. Which Jesus realized in this question of the cup and baptism, they, they still don't get what's coming. Will you drink this cup and be baptized with this baptism? Yes, you're willing, but you have no idea what I'm about to go through. Okay, you will drink and you will be baptized with this cup and this baptism like the, the rest of the twelve who would all suffer a martyr's death and suffer for Jesus, but not in the same way Jesus would suffer. And then it says in verse 41, the other ten are indignant with James and John. Now we've already seen the twelve arguing over who is the greatest, and so their anger is probably rooted in, why didn't we think of asking that? Man, they got there first with that question. But see, don't see the foolishness of these immature disciples. See Jesus serve them and be so gracious and humble with them and their lack of understanding. Jesus doesn't freak out. He doesn't go off on them. He doesn't yell at them for being dumb and immature. He's allowing the Spirit to grow them and progress them in God's timing for them. Jesus doesn't panic and say, guys, you know in like a 50 days... Uh, Pentecost is going to be happening and I'm out of here and you're going to have to leave the church? Are you ever going to get it? He doesn't do that. Jesus died so that we would be free to be gracious and humble with each other and the immature, silly, dumb, idiotic, ridiculous, well-intentioned or even sometimes hurtful things we do to each other as we follow Christ together. Unless none of that happens in this church. Maybe it's just the crossing where all that happens. How do you know you're lacking in grace and humility with fellow disciples? If you get, ang 
if you get angry with them over their sinful choices and mistakes, if you look down on them for their choices and decisions or convictions, if you can't freely, willfully, joyfully love and serve them, if you see them and in any way elevate yourself above them, if being gracious and humble and getting low, you, you, being gracious and humble and getting low to lift others up, not placing yourself higher to look down on them. Like, isn't that when we're most tempted to not be gracious and humble with each other? When we mess up, we make mistakes, we make sinful choices that, that people don't agree with. If you're quick to criticize, if you're quick to pounce, recognize this is not how Jesus treats his immature and growing followers. If you're quick to put yourself in the mature category and others in the immature category, again, Jesus died to set you free from your own pride and arrogance. Grace gives the benefit of the doubt to each other. Grace, humility, is not quick to criticize, but quick to understand and listen. Grace assumes the best because grace sees where all of this is headed. We're all being made like Jesus. On, we're all on different paths. We're all on different timetables. None of us are growing as fast as we want to grow or as we want each other to grow, but we're all getting there. Because Jesus said, He who began a good work in you will complete it. We're all headed there together, and we actually, in fact, need each other to get there. And so grace and humility allows us to see each other as God sees us, holy, blameless, righteous sons and daughters of our Father in heaven, growing and maturing disciples of Christ who are in process the Spirit of God is working that out so it will be complete, but it will be complete in God's timing and God's way so I don't have to panic. I don't have to force you into my timetable. You don't have to force each other into your timetable because we can trust our Father in Heaven with His timetable. And all along the way, we can be gracious and humble with each other as we all make mistakes, learn, grow. We don't have to pounce. Sometimes we do need to ask questions and correct there's a place for confrontation and rebuke, but it's always marked by humility and grace because I see my sins much clearer and more than I see your sins. You see your own sins more than you see the sins of others. So we're set free to submit to our Father in heaven. Secondly, we are set free to be gracious and humble with each other. And then lastly, Quickly, we're set free to be humble and great in serving one another. The last few verses, verse 42. Jesus called them over and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them, but it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus reveals that in God's kingdom, it's not like the world system where power and control rule and dominate. Jesus says emphatically, it shall not be so among you. In other words, if the way you treat each other is as the Gentiles do, trying to dominate by power and control, you are standing outside of God's kingdom and God's way of relationship. It should certainly not be that way in the church. That's how the world works. That's not how the church works. The way of Jesus, the way of the kingdom is lowly, service, sacrifice, being a slave for the good of others. This is the entire ministry of Jesus. Jesus never committed, uh, performed one single miracle that he would personally benefit from. It was always to serve 
and love others. It's the entire ministry of Jesus. This is here in this passage how he's treating his disciples. This is Jesus in a few hours from now. Uh, in the story where he would do the lowliest task imaginable, imaginable, washing their disgusting feet, doing the work of the lowliest slave, even the disciple who would betray him, washing his feet. This is how we treat each other. This is how we treat the least of these, Jesus says in Matthew 25. What we have to be careful of is we don't turn this into a kind of lowly service of each other. We don't turn this kind of humble service of each other into a type of religion. In other words, look at all the lowly things I'm doing for others. Look how great I am, how humble I am, and how I serve others. Hashtag, post it on social media. Look at the great service I'm doing for others. And that's, if, if that's truly the motivation of your heart, then those acts of service will get old quick because you're never going to get as much applause as you think you deserve. But that's how amazingly sinful we are that we can turn even acts of service for others into a way to glorify ourselves. No, if they are done with the right motivations, the right heart, they will lead to true joy, deep abiding joy, and even happiness. Like... Even non-Christians have studied happiness and found that serving others makes you happier than not serving others and just serving yourself. But if that's the reason you're doing it, you're headed back into bondage. For these to be truly unselfish and to bring deep joy, they have to flow from a heart that has received much and can give much. And that's the final thing I want to draw your attention to. The only way this life of grace, humility, submission joyfully serving others. The only way this marks our life is if we are first served by Christ. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. For each of us that begins with us, Christ has to first serve us by dying for our sins and our bondage to set us free. And only then, only then will we become part of the many set free to serve others selflessly in love with joy. Like if you look at your life this morning and you're filled with all kinds of guilt and shame because your life is not marked by this kind of humility and service of others, see that Jesus has now come to serve you, to help you start fresh, start new, to begin to live in the way He's created you to live. So submit to that, receive that. Let Him wash you, let Him cleanse you, let Him change you, let Him forgive you. And fill you with Himself so that you can love and serve others in humility for His glory. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're full of pride, you're like, I already do all this so good, they should give me a plaque. I'm such a humble servant. Doesn't everyone here know this and see this? Realize, realize again, Jesus came to serve you and break you free of your arrogance and your pride that thinks you're so amazing to, to give you humility. So, church, respond today in repentance and faith in Jesus who came and lived and died so that we will be set free from bondage to go be His people and show the world what the people of God look like and what the kingdom of God look like.